episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. So go check them out at linode.com slash ifreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks, episode number 221. This week on our panel, we have Erica Sadoon. Hello from Denver. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. And I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City. This week, we have a guest. Our guest is Dave DeLong. Dave, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm Dave DeLong. I actually live fairly close to Andrew, uh, just about a half hour south of Salt Lake City. Um, my background is, is uh, I've been programming for about 15 years, and about 10 of those have been on iOS or macOS platforms. Uh, I recently finished up uh, seven years of working at Apple, where I was working on the UIKit framework for a couple of years, three years on the developer evangelism team, and then two years on Apple Maps. Uh, I recently left, and now I work at Snap on the Snapchat app. You may know Dave from uh, TechCrunch articles announcing the <laughs> the opening of a Snap office here. It was completely accidental. It made me laugh because I think they extrapolated so much. But so, Dave, we um, we we had lots of things we thought we could talk to you about today. But uh, w- one thing that I thought was particularly interesting is sort of um, the work you've been doing in, in the Swift community, and I, I think this is something you've been interested in even while you were at Apple. But now that you're outside of Apple, you're able to participate uh, more publicly in, in the Swift community and the Swift evolution process. Why don't you just talk a little bit about that? What is it that you've sort of been doing and um, on, on Swift, and you know why is it something that's interesting to you? Yeah, uh, so my interest in Swift uh, started before it was released. Um, it came out while I was working on the evangelism team, and I specifically was the developer tools evangelist at the time. Um, and before it was released, myself and a couple of our teammates got access to the project because the Swift team wanted to make sure that Swift as a language would work well in with existing apps. They were concerned about the whole interoperability with Objective-C code. So given the good relationship between developer tools and evangelism, uh, they reached out to us and told us about the project with a caveat that we had to put it into the WWDC app and to test the whole interoperability uh, functionality of the language in the compiler. Um, so I've been working on Swift or involved with Swift in some fashion for for longer than almost anybody else, with the exception of everyone in, in developer tools. So you're the um, person the recruiters are looking for. Yeah, yeah. I don't right quite here. have as much experience as Chris Latner, though, of course. But yeah, I've got about six months on everybody else. So yeah, I, I've been really in, interested in Swiss since the very beginning. Like I, I definitely have a lot of background in Objective-C and a lot of love for Objective-C, but I really like how Swift allows me to be a whole lot more terse when I'm writing code. I can get just as much done in my code while writing less of it, which I really appreciate. And I also really like how it allows me to be safer and express ideas that were a lot more difficult to express than in Objective-C. And this centers around the usage of things like generics and you know deeper integration with protocols in the language and, uh, and so on. So I, I love the language. I do almost all of my on-the-side coding in Swift. And uh, I, yeah, I'm just really, really excited to see how it evolves. Could you talk a little bit about how Swift is as an open source project, given that Apple is not really known for its openness? Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting topic. I think Swift is, 
I'm I'm hopeful. I don't really know, but I'm hopeful that Swift is Apple approaching becoming a more open company. I think they definitely were had the right idea in wanting Swift to be an open source project and wanting community engagement. Um, but I also know that the level of interest in Swift um, at the very beginning and its announcements caught them off guard in the sense that people immediately threw all of their development weight behind it and started porting all of their apps over to Swift. So there's definitely been a very steep learning curve in terms of how to manage the open source project, how to keep people happy while still being locked into the uh, semi-annual release cycle that uh, Apple currently finds itself in. It's, it's a tough, tough road to walk because, you know, everybody who participates in Swift evolution or is doing active development in Swift, we all have our gripes and our pain points with the language. And it can be kind of daunting to have to wait, you know, six months or a year or even longer in order for some of these shortcomings to be addressed. Could you explain what Swift evolution is to anybody listening who might not be familiar with it? course. Uh, the Swift evolution uh, process is basically currently a, a glorified mailing list. Um, it's where anybody who's interested in helping improve Swift as a language uh, or the feature set of the core standard libraries can subscribe with onto the mailing list and participate in the discussions there. Also on the mailing list are a lot of the key stakeholders in the Swift language at Apple. Uh, so people like, you know, Ted Kremenek, uh, and Slava and Joe and, you know, several others. These are all, you know, engineers in the developer tools department who are working on actively on Swift and the compiler and the debugger and all of its integration with the developer tools. So some of the proposals that people put forth on the Swift evolution mailing list are you know, maybe changes to syntax to make certain tasks easier or proposals to add or modify parts of the standard library uh, to, to meet certain goals. You also mentioned the yearly development cycle. Yep. And am I right in saying that's something you don't usually see with programming languages? Yeah, I think that's kind of uncommon for... Uh, things that are outside of Apple. For things that are inside of Apple, I think currently it's kind of unavoidable. There's obviously a, a lot of, a lot of weight and effort that goes into the yearly release of new hardware. Um, and as such, things like the corresponding software releases and therefore these SDKs and therefore the development tools are all fairly tied to that hardware release that we see generally every fall. There are uh, updates outside of that fall release time. So we'll generally see, you know, a dot one and a dot two release uh, happen a couple months later. Um, and then maybe a dot three release in early spring. But there, there's currently just like the major yearly, yearly March. A lot of developers tell me that they so far have held off from jumping fully into Swift because they fear that turbulence. They fear the migration. They fear the needing to keep relearning the language, updating their code and so forth. Are these realistic concerns? And whether they are or they aren't, how should developers deal with this? I think those are realistic concerns to a certain point. One of the things that I kind of struggle with is, you know, since I've been using Swift since, you know, pre 1.0, I've kind of learned it in my head, you know, how to do certain things in, in certain ways. And I'm not always fully aware of when the standard library changes to make those sorts of tasks easier. So there is, I think, some concern with a core standard library that is still maturing. I also think there is some validity to the concern around 
churn in your code base when syntax changes or things like that. Although I do know that the Swift team takes source compatibility extremely seriously. When when they do a new release of Swift now, they have a very, very high bar for when they are willing to break your source code. So for for people who are wondering about Swift and wondering about is it you know appropriate for my project, I have a hard time coming up with a definitive rule, but you know, for, for someone like myself who's excited to learn new ideas and excited to, to experiment and research and, you know, try and create the best thing I can. For me, those sorts of costs of being willing to deal with the code churn and being willing to relearn old tricks, so to speak, those are worth it to me. For other people who are still worried about, you know, fast fast ship times and not wanting to have to to go through a migration process when a new version of the compiler comes out or who are worried about the size of their binary on the app store then perhaps they should continue holding off uh, on swift for a little longer do you think apple shipped swift too early that's that's hard to say because since it was something brand new can you say it was too early even because it was brand new? Um, I don't think so. I think if anything, I, I think what people are grumbling about when they express that sort of sentiment is more of a reflection on the release cycle associated with Swift and how it is tied to the developer tools, which are on a yearly release cycle. If Swift were on a release cycle where we got you know, a new stable version of the compiler, you know, every two months, I don't think we would see as many concerns on, you know, having shipped it too early because we would know that updates and and fixes would be faster coming. There was a huge amount of churn between version one and version two, between version two and version three and less so going forward from there. And I think that churn put off a lot of people who would otherwise have been very excited if Swift 4 was the very first version you could actually ship apps in. Yeah, uh, I think that's a a fair criticism. I think it, it kind of goes back to my point, though, about, you know, if... If you're willing to accept the cost, then it's it's going to be a fun ride. It's kind of like investing, right? The the higher the risk, the higher the reward, in my opinion. For me, working uh, with the early versions of Swift and being able to be a part of the evolution process and help shape the future of the language, that's something that's uh, highly rewarding to me as a developer, as a as a member of a community. And so for me, the risks associated with that of dealing with, you know, essentially, you know, a, a broken compiler fairly frequently when I have to, you know, do things like force quit Xcode to get indexing back, for example, you know, those sorts of risks uh, and trade-offs are worth it to me. I think that uh, you know, another, you know, thing that's, that makes that question difficult to answer is that a lot of the changes that we saw in Swift from version one to two and two to three were, I think, driven by users of Swift. And it's it's not clear to me that if Apple had just kept Swift internal, you know, for another few years, that they would have gotten to the same good place as they did getting it out there and getting lots of feedback from people using it for all kinds of different real things. Um, so I don't know. It's a, a trade-off. And then, and then again, I think, there's a lot of complaining about the tools, um, which is is probably fair. And uh, there's something to be said for, well, you know, Apple didn't f- force anyone to use Swift on day one. I didn't ship an app in Swift 1. I waited until Swift 2 before I used it for anything more than a side project, really. Mm-hmm. A lot of the churn that developers experience is very specific to that border that lies between Apple's APIs and the Swift language. And you saw that where Swift attempted to integrate with the Cocoa Era system. And you saw that also where Swift was dealing with 
the very Objective-C-like APIs. And both of those things, especially in Swift 2, were addressed by introducing a universal error system and by doing what's called Swiftification, taking an Objective-C API and automatically turning it into a more swift consumption point. And I think that many concerns that people still have with the language is because there is that line of what lies in the open community and what lies in that kind of secretive Apple community. If a Swift user wants to change something in foundation, they have to file a radar, a bug report. There's no direct communication, and that can be very frustrating for people who are trying to develop apps of any complexity. Yes, I agree. I agree completely that that communicating with Apple can sometimes be extremely difficult. To to go back to your earlier point about, you know, like the churn between the swiftification of the Objective-C APIs and so on, uh, it had always been a goal and still is a goal of Swift to make interoperability with Objective-C as best as they possibly can. This was, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, this was a large part of what my tasks were in integrating Swift into the WWDC app, which was to make sure that that interoperability worked well and, you know, wasn't onerous uh, on me as a developer. And in fact, was as good as an experience as they could make it. As Swift 1.0 was released and as people started discovering the sorts of conventions that they liked to use in Swift, the expectations of what became a, or what a good importation or Swiftification should be like changed. And the changes that we saw in Swift 2 and Swift 3 were to evolve and improve that. And that's when we saw the introduction of things like nullability and so on uh, into Objective-C to enhance the experience within Swift. And to explain what nullability is, it's an annotation, right? Yeah, nullability is uh, kind of like a little hint you can give to the compiler when you're saying, if I'm passing in a string parameter to this uh, method, um, it can never be null, or it's allowed to be null, or uh, a a hint like that. And then those annotations, when they're imported into Objective-C, or excuse me, imported into Swift, Um, help the Swift compiler know, am I allowed to pass a string here? Does it have to be an optional string? And so on. I think an important thing that a lot of people don't realize is it's not just Swift that's evolving. Objective-C keeps moving forward as well. And things like nullability annotations and other annotations that allow you to specify what things look like from Objective-C to Swift or from Swift to Objective-C. These are all growing and developing even now where Objective-C is taking, you know, a, a, a march forward into developing into a more complex language as well. It definitely is. Uh, the additions of nullability to Objective-C are a great example Another recent example is that uh, we recently got new syntax to use in Objective-C for coping with differing availability. Uh, so the idea behind availability is that you know if I'm writing an app and I'm building against the iOS 11 APIs, um, I have to take into account you know what happens when my app runs on an iOS 10 device. So I have to have an availability check in my code so I can conditionalize my logic. And before uh, the most, this most recent release, Xcode 9, I had to do things you know, like checking for the existence of classes or doing a response to selector check to see if a method existed and so on. Um, now we've got a new syntax that's almost identical to what it is in Swift, where I can do essentially if available and then a, a version number and the compiler will change that into a corresponding check uh, at compile time. 
it uses the appropriate system markers to know what version I'm, I'm running against and so on. So yeah, Objective-C is definitely evolving. I kind of have this joke that I think Chris Latner is intentionally, and you know, not Chris anymore since he left, but you know, that there's kind of this goal to make Objective-C as ugly as possible. Because once you start going through and annotating all of your Objective-C APIs with nullability and the availability macros and things like no escape on your block parameters and everything, um, it can make your headers look really gross and bloated. I don't know, but I have to wonder if that's intentional, that if you start getting into this so much that your Objective-C just starts looking so ugly that you think, man, I should just be writing this in Swift anyway. I think there are a lot of developers who would say that ugliness is a, was a core feature of Objective-C from the beginning. <laughs> it's Perhaps. not so much ugliness as an aesthetic quality of constant repetition. Yep. Yeah. And there definitely are things in like the foundation framework that can make this easier. Like there are some macros to help you uh, blanket declare nullability for an entire file and so on. So it's, it's not so bad, but uh, if you're trying to, uh, you know, be very explicit and diligent in what you're doing, it can, it can really uh, convolute your code. Now, I don't want to move on from this without mentioning Core Foundation. And the okay. reason I want to mention Core Foundation is because those are the C-based APIs. And Dave, how would you describe Swift's elegance with respect to C? That's... Swift is not nearly as elegant when you're dealing with C directly. Core Foundation is kind of an interesting level that's halfway in between C and Objective-C. When you get to the, to the layers below Objective-C, so C or Core Foundation, um, you definitely start getting into some of the weirder areas of Swift that I like to avoid as much as I can. Uh, and you it's start, still developing. It is still developing. Like there, there are proposals that are have been going into Swift five about uh, changing the syntax and the types that are around importing pointers from C into Swift. You start dealing with types like the unsafe raw buffers or unsafe mutable raw buffers or whatever, and they're all kind of gross and, and difficult to work with. In terms of Core Foundation itself, uh, that's kind of an interesting point. Um, core Foundation used to be uh, like how Foundation was built. Uh, so like Foundation was built on top of, of Core Foundation. Um, these days, the line is much more blurred. Um, a lot of Core Foundation is actually now a C wrapper around the Foundation API. Uh, just in order to preserve compatibility with apps that are still using the Core Foundation code. So in general, I like to stay away from Core Foundation as much as I can. Sometimes I can't, in which case I do lots of Googling and asking my friends, I'm like, so what exactly is an unsafe raw mutable buffer again, and how do I use it? Just because it's like some of the more esoteric niche knowledge of Swift that most developers, I don't think, usually need to run into. I don't, I, especially I, lately, I don't feel like I've had to use Core Foundation much, but there are actually some other C APIs that are. Um, Accelerate. Think, yeah, Accelerate. Yeah. The one for me is Core MIDI uh, because I've done a lot with Core MIDI. Yeah, it's for me, it's Swift. for me, it's the launch services and, mo uh, and core mobile core services APIs and dealing with uh, uniform type identifiers. For me, I'm doing quite a lot of Core Foundation right now because I'm doing drawing. Mm -hmm. And while the wrappers that are provided by UIKit and several other um, frameworks are there and they're lovely, they're not complete. You don't get all of core text. You don't get all of core graphics. And because of that, I've been, you know, jumping Feet first, head first. I've been jumping in some way. I, I don't know how the jump is happening, but I've been doing a lot of interop. And 
it's hard. Yeah, you've been belly flopping. <laughs> I think that's exactly what I've been doing. And what's worse is I know this is an area of tension and change. This is an area that they're still trying to design. And any kind of sea-based interop is particularly susceptible to that design change. And we have to see what's going to happen when we hit Swift 5. Yes. Yeah, I think the the good thing is, it seems like there's a lot of room there for Apple to do better. Like the the Swift um, overlay for core graphics is is nice. And they, they did this with Grand Central Dispatch, which is a C API in Swift 3, where they really made it seem very much like a native Swift API. And in many ways, it's now nicer to use in Swift than it is in C or in Objective-C. I hope they can come up with something like that that spans sort of all of the core foundation style frameworks, or, or at least covers more of them. The thing about core foundation is there are some things that there's this phrase and it's called toll-free bridging. And it basically means you're working essentially with the same kind of object with one core foundation object as you are with a more nuanced one like a UI kit object. They're, they're, they're more or less interchangeable. Yes. The APIs might have, you know, some slight quirks, but you, they can be treated as the same thing. But a lot of times what also happens is you have wrappers. And the wrappers do two things. First of all, they extend the core foundation functionality, but they also hide a lot of core foundation functionality. And because they're hiding some really tricky, specific things like, you know, very fine detail glyph kerning, for example, or when you're working with ligatures, because of that, you do have to go into core foundation to get access to that level of control. And if you're doing that, that means you're using pure C APIs, including things like, for example, you give a function callback or you give a function that is then passed to a structure. For example, if you're doing a, a Bezier path, you want to, if you want to get the points out of the path, you have to pass a function back, a C function. And doing that is just, I don't know if I have a really polite word to describe it, but it's certainly challenging. Challenging is a good word. It wasn't even possible in the first version of Swift. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android. And all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. When I come across stuff like this, where I have to operate on some you know, low-level things in, in Core Foundation or kind of you know things that haven't been bridged very well in from Objective-C into Swift, uh, I usually end up creating my own a better wrapper around them in Objective-C um, and then bridge the Objective-C wrapper into Swift. Um, it's not ideal, but definitely makes the Swift code nicer. That's my preferred so way to do it, One of the hallmarks of Swift development is customization. And I don't think there are many Swift developers out there who don't extensively customize types for their own convenience. 
and they create these magnificent libraries. And I'm hinting very strongly at Dave here, <laughs> which, which they can then bring into their projects and they bring into every single project these really strong extensions of the Swift language that then become a toolbox. But there's no way right now for those extensions, especially extensions that people would use very commonly to be shared or curated. And I think Dave has something to say about that. I, I do. I, I definitely think there are a certain class of libraries that merit deeper integration with Swift than just Joe Schmo's repo on, on GitHub. Um, I recently, with you, Erica, proposed the idea of a, a non-standard, or we jokingly called them substandard, uh, libraries for Swift. And these, the idea behind these sorts of libraries would be um, things that are probably maybe shipped with the Swift standard libraries, but are not included by default in a new project. Um, and I do want to point out that there is a foundation library that is part of Apple, but there's also a foundation library that now ships with Swift. And could you just like talk about where that came from? Um, I don't know entirely where that came from. I think that was driven largely by the motivation to have Swift exist on many platforms, uh, coupled with the realization that foundation as shipped in the SDK, um, doesn't exist on multiple platforms. And so I think the goal there, and this is just me speculating, but I think the goal behind the Swift Foundation is to bring a lot, or maybe even all, of the really nice things that the Foundation Framework provides and make them to any client of Swift, um, whether it's you know Swift on iOS, Swift on the server, Swift on Linux, Swift on your Raspberry Pi, or whatever. And what it means to be a foundation library is to provide a, a very basic layer of functionality for application development. It's all those things that really are universally used, such as data storage and persistence or date and time calculations or sorting and filtering or networking. These are kind of universal foundational concepts that really can't be decoupled from development. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then some of the libraries that we propose that might be considered non-standard libraries would be things like a big number library. So this would be for people who want to do calculations outside of the, the normal range provided by floats or doubles or with uh, higher precision than those data types offer. Um, one of the things that's being debated a lot right now on the Swift Evolution mailing list is uh, the addition of better support for random numbers. Um, I'm not a random number expert, but there apparently are a whole lot of situations where just calling uh, ARC4 random are inappropriate. And so the idea behind a random library would be you know, for people who need better randomness or certain kinds of randomness or randomness with certain uh, distributions of, of random numbers uh, that they could pull in this library. Um, and randomness, arc for random, is part of Darwin on Apple platforms. Right. And I believe it's part of glibc on li Linux. No idea. <laughs> but the point is you don't access it the same way. Yeah. And there is no real standardized way to do random numbers. Yes. So again, it's a really great thing if it were part of the language. Another one is regular expressions. Yeah. Regular expressions are a big one uh, that we've also been talking about um, manipulating paths. So like file system paths or resource identifier paths and so on. Because the types provided in foundation to do this sort of thing are just URL and string, which aren't always uh, the most semantically appropriate uh, data types to be using. 
Um, one that I'm really interested in and that I've been thinking a lot about is a, is a date and time library. So Foundation has date APIs, and they are arguably the best date APIs out of any library that exists in the world. The problem is that date and time calculations and you know properly using calendars and time zones and so on is so complex that very few people actually get it right. And there's about a bazillion things that can go wrong uh, if you're not careful. And also, as magnificent as they are, they aren't complete. For example, there's no way if you're doing a simulation to speed up a clock. Right. So I, if I'm trying to test when, uh, you know, that things are happening at the proper time relative to each other, I don't really have a good way to fake uh, the system time other than just going into settings and changing the time on my device. Um, I also don't have good ways to describe uh, recurrence rules. So, um, you know, things that happen on the second Tuesday of the month, but only if there's already been a full moon or, you know, something, something crazy like that, which, you know, might not seem interesting for most apps on, on the forefront, but a lot of holidays that people celebrate are defined as these sorts of rule based uh, date calculation. So um, uh, like Easter is a holiday that's defined relative to a full moon, depending on where you are in the world. Um, or, you know, Thanksgiving in the United States is the fourth, thir third, fourth Thursday of the month, and so on. And it's, it's possible to do some of these with the, the date and time APIs, but they can feel kind of kludgy uh, at times. So I would really like to see a, a better date and time library that makes these sorts of common calculations easier and more straightforward while hiding a lot of the rough edges and things that can go wrong. Because when I'm writing an app, like, I really don't want to think about, okay, well, you know, what if 2 a.m. doesn't exist on this day where I'm trying to pick a date? And, or what if I'm trying to create a date, but it's actually falling on a leap month or something like this? Or what if I'm dealing with a locale where they have skipped a day in the middle of the month because they switched their time zone or switched which side of the international dateline they're on? And these are all problems that happen that make dealing with calendars and dates and times really complex. But I generally don't want to think about them because <laughs> they drive you crazy when you do. But they're also extremely necessary things for people they, who are building applications. They are extremely necessary. And, uh, you know, it seems like almost every year, uh, maybe even twice a year, there's some sort of news articles that pop up around the daylight saving time transition of, you know, oh, you know, look at this thing that's misbehaving or see whose alarms didn't go off and, and so on because of these sorts of crazy calendrical transitions that happen. And Apple's version of foundation is under the secrecy umbrella. Um, yes, the, the stuff that exists in Swift is imported from foundation, which is the objective C version. Um, I don't think it's been re-implemented in Swift yet. Um, because it's built on top of, the ICU libraries for manipulating date and time. Uh, and I don't think those are part of the Swift project. So what are the goals for a non-standard or a substandard library? Um, a few goals. Uh, one, I think, would be to, to improve the speed at which uh, iteration can happen on these sorts of things. The number of people who are employed at Apple is fairly finite. Um, it can seem like a lot at the time, but when you've got a whole lot of things to do, you never have enough people. However, we do have this really huge community of, of Swift developers outside of Apple, and I think they would be a really awesome resource to tap to build these sorts of non-standard libraries. So uh, one of the goals would be to improve iteration speed, 
Um, another goal would be to help ease some of the workload that's been thrust upon the Apple engineers working on Swift in their libraries. Um, another goal would be to add things that maybe the Apple engineers would never get around to because it's not, you know, something that's approved by the Apple project managers. Um, and or not seen as necessary because they don't have a, a, a particular business need for it, but that as a whole would be beneficial for the community. So how would you, would you see these libraries being distributed? The part of you know, Xcode, you download the Swift version, you get it some other way? That's kind of where the discussion on the mailing list led is, you know, what, what shape do these sorts of non-standard libraries have? Um, there are some really, really interesting questions that arise with having a library that's actually sh shipped as part of Swift. Um, and they're centered around the upcoming ABI stability, which is um, uh, it's the idea that I can change my app without having to change which version of Swift I'm, I'm using uh, at a really high level. Um, once we have... So we're currently in the place where in order to build a Swift app, I have to include all of Swift inside my app, um, for better or for worse. Um, this is actually kind of fun and, and good for packaging. Like I can build a Swift app and deploy it even to, to places where Swift isn't natively supported because I've got everything there in the app that I need. What the problem is, is that in the future, once we move past this, where there will be a, uh, a standard version of Swift on the system, I have library developers have to start thinking about this thing called binary compatibility. And binary compatibility is how, how a library behaves depending on which version the app is expecting to use. So to give an example, uh, if I built an app for iOS 9 and then ran it on an iOS 11 device, all of the frameworks have changed because everything on the iOS 11 device would now, of course, be iOS 11, but the app would still expect it to be iOS 9. Um, and so the libraries have to do the this all this internal logic to behave as if it was still an iOS 9 device. And once we start getting into the idea of non-standard libraries that ship with Swift, this is something that library authors will have to care about. Um, because if these libraries are shipped with Swift, then they have to do this sort of binary compatibility. Now, and so the, the question then came up on the list, well, you know, would we want that? Is that a, a limitation or a a requirement we would want to impose on these sorts of library authors. And I don't know. There is something really appealing about being able to, you know, just import random or import big num or, or whatever in my code and not have to think about it. But I also know that, you know, creating libraries in this way makes it a much higher barrier to entry to getting involved. Some of the other options that came up for distributing these sorts of non-standard libraries is kind of like um, a centralized module repository, similar to you know what you would find with like NPM for the JavaScript community, where you've got this curated library or curated list of really excellent libraries that somehow you know Swift knows to import from there, but then those libraries would just get uh, included in your app no matter how you built it and no matter what the, the, the ABI situation is. So there are a lot of questions around, you know, how these sorts of libraries would be distributed. And I'm not really sure which way I lean yet. This is kind of what the evolution process is for. We pitch an idea and see how it evolves and the idea will evolve or die. So this is actually something I wanted to ask you about. I, so I'm coming at this from my, my perspective, which is as an experienced a uh, developer on Apple, Apple's platforms who's been using Swift since the beginning, but who has really felt like Swift evolution is not for me just because it seems to take so much effort to keep on top of it because there's so much going on on the list all the time. And I wonder, 
if I wanted to get involved with Swift, Swift Evolution, how would I do that? How do you manage, uh, you, you know, h- how are you part of the community? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the evolution process definitely can be overwhelming at times. Um, so if you want to get involved, uh, you know, just head over to, I think it's lists.swift.org is the website for, for signing up for the mailing list. Um, and then just lurk for a while. Um, you will get a lot of email and you won't understand a lot of it, but you know, that's okay. Sometimes threads will come in where you do see stuff that you understand. And even for me, you know, I've, I've been programming for a while and I, been involved for a while, but there's so much that happens on there that I don't understand. Um, there's a, a thread going on or a couple of threads going on right now about, you know, integrating with uh, interpreted languages. So, you know, there's been some motivation to have Swift interact nicely with Python, for example. And to be honest, I, I don't know Python. I have no real interest in uh, the interoperability of Swift with Python. Um, and so when those sorts of threads come through, I just kind of immediately mark them as red and, and move on. And I just kind of glance for, for things at a high level. Now, there is an evolution to the evolution process that's uh, going on, and that is the, the goal of getting Swift evolution out of a mailing list. Um, this has been a, a goal of the Swift team for a while to get into a more uh, forum-based process rather than email. So that that's an ongoing thing, and uh, there was an update recently that they're starting to work on it, but it'll still be, I think, a couple of months before we see any major public changes with the evolution process. But yeah, if you want to get involved, the, the simple thing to do is just... Uh, Get on the mailing list and start reading and be okay with the fact that you're not going to understand everything and contribute however, however you feel comfortable and capable contributing. Maybe that's just responding to a, a thread that says, you know, plus one in my experience, this is, you know, how I really want to do things and, you know, sign it and send it. It does seem like you know, commenting and discussing other people's proposals is probably easier out of the gate than coming up with your own. Absolutely. I I sometimes feel a little intimidated proposing stuff to the Swift list because for me as an app developer, I don't really care how Swift is implemented. I just know kind of how I want it to work when I'm writing an app. And there are a whole there's a whole lot of discussion that happens on the list about how it gets implemented. And honestly, I just don't really care. I just, I just want it to work and get out of my way so I can keep writing apps. Is there anything else you think we should cover before we wrap up and get to the picks? No, I think this is pretty good. This has uh, been fun chatting about the, the history and, and evolution of Swift. I'm really excited to see where it goes. I'm hopeful that the, the ABI stability will bring in like a new era of confidence in the language. I'm also excited to see you know how the libraries change there's been some good discussion around concurrency constructs and how to do asynchronous code in swift um i'm a little more skeptical on that but uh for me you know just seeing all these ideas and trying them out and and you know becoming using this as an impetus to make myself a better programmer is is why i love it all cool well thanks for coming on dave we're going to get to picks uh james do you have a pick for us This episode is brought to you by Gamefly.com. Gamefly has over 8,000 new releases and classics available to rent for Xbox One, Xbox 360, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 3, PS Vita, Wii U, Wii, and 3DS, as well as older systems. As a Gamefly member, you can rent as many console or handheld games as you want and get them delivered right to your mailbox for one low monthly fee. If you like a game so much that you don't want to send it back, you can keep it for a low used price. There are never any due dates or late fees. Gamefly also offers the ability to rent Blu-ray and DVD movies as part of the regular service at no extra charge. They're offering a premium three-day trial for free. That's one game out shipped directly to you with a pre-addressed envelope included for easy returns. No contracts. Cancel any time. You can get this 30-day free trial at GameflyOffer.com slash devchat. That's 
gameflyoffer.com slash devchat for a 30-day free trial. Yeah, so I've got one pick. Now, if you're like me, you get a lot of emails from recruiters and people contacting you about fantastic positions. And how do you respond to them? You just ignore them. A little bit rude. But developer Ruby developer Brian Hogan came up with a little template you can drop in and respond to it. And it goes like this. Dear recruiter, thank you for your recent email. As a software developer, I received many opportunities from talented, talented recruiters like you with compelling positions, despite not ever giving you my contact information. Unfortunately, I'm unable to accept every offer to learn more, more about the job. Therefore, I have made the tough decision not to move forward with this discussion. I wish you the best of luck in your candidate search. <laughs> so if you want to use that, you can. It's on the web. I'll send them put a link in the notes. Go forth and respond. Very good, James. I just, uh, you know, hit ignore or delete on most of those messages. But if you're going to respond, that's a good way to respond. Uh, let's see. Erica, do you have any picks for us? Well, we've got Dave on the show today. So my pick has to be Brandon Sanderson, who is an author. And I am going to recommend Mistborn, his Mistborn trilogy, because there's no better place to get addicted to the Sanderson. So I, Dave and some other friends are um, very often talking about Brandon Sanderson. And as somebody who has not read one of his books, I feel a little bit overwhelmed in the same way I feel overwhelmed with Swift Evolution about how to get into them, because I think I would probably like them. So that's a good pick. Dave, do you have any picks for us? Well, I absolutely second Erica's recommendation for Brandon Sanderson. I own, I think, everything he's ever written, um, with a couple of, of exceptions, and I, I love it all. Um, but since she already mentioned him, I will mention another. Um, if you liked the book or the movie The Martian, um, the author, Andy Weir, has a new book out uh, this past week called Artemis. Um, it's about a heist on the moon. Um, there's a lot of technical science stuff in there. So if you enjoyed The Martian, I think you'll really enjoy Artemis as well. I love The Martian, so I have to read that. So I've got one pick. Uh, I'm going to break from everybody else and pick a tool, which I haven't done in a while. And the one I'm going to pick is is Clang Format, which is actually a tool that ships with Clang, with the compiler. I don't, I don't really know what, what it's why it's there because I don't think it's integrated into Xcode or anything like that, but it's a tool that you can, um, that basically will format your code according to a code style that you set. I don't think it works for Swift, which is a downside, but it works for C, C++ and Objective C. Uh, and I, having known about it for a long time, had a big code base with some reformatting that I wanted to do and, um, figure out how to run it through Clang format yesterday. And it actually worked really well. It was quite nice. So that's Clang format. All right, uh, that wraps up the show. Thanks, Dave, for coming on. It was good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And we'll see everybody next week. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.